we are starting to close out this idea of where we've been the last five, six weeks called People of the Fine Print. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at a church called Passion City Church for some direction and how they formulated this concept. I, I kind of fell in love with it on Right Now Media, and I decided as a team, and downtown's doing it too, and Micah's preaching these sermons too, uh, this idea that uh, it's really the narrative of Scripture that Jesus is a big deal. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. And then all of us kind of fall in line in this supplementary role of being people that don't get a lot of airtime but are really important to the narrative of Jesus being made great. And so the lead story is Jesus is alive, Jesus saves, Jesus heals, Jesus transforms. Lead character is Jesus, period. And then we are the people that are less noticed. And the two ideas are this, God appoints people for his role and his story. And then the second thing that we've been saying week after week after week is this, the church is not built on the gifts and talents of a few, but on the sacrifices of Many, we should all know that by now, and so that's our story. And so as we start closing this thing out, uh, we're gonna talk about Dr. Luke this morning, and we're gonna actually look to the end of Paul's writings as he's talking to Timothy, and he's in prison, and he's about to say, I'm gonna read it in just a second, my, my time has come, my departure date has arrived, I'm about to go be with Jesus. That's the whole point of giving your life to Christ, that you're with Christ for eternity. And he starts mentioning these people, and some of which, they're all in the fine print, some of which he has good things to say about, and then some of which we try to avoid the people that he is going to mention. Not avoid them and ministering to him, but avoid being them. Because some of these people are following Christ, and then they have a departure on earth, away from Christ. And so he's going to bring those people up too. And we're going to talk about all of them. But here, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Here we go. Paul says this. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And then he says this. He says, And the time of my departure has come. What Paul knows is that there is this collision course that's happening for himself and happening for all of us, that, that this time on earth is very limited, that these two worlds are going to collide, this now and eternity, and that he has a last heartbeat and it's getting close. So a lot of us don't know when that'll be, but Paul has this idea because he knows what's going on in the socio-political realm and how much he's hated by those around him that don't love Jesus. And so his entire life is really just like ours in that this is the time where maybe metaphorically you're in the airport and you're getting in the plane and then this is the time where the departure has come. The flight attendant comes on and what does the flight attendant always say? In your tight seats, in your, you know, if you're anything like me, you fly the cheapest flights possible. And so you're saying, I just want to get in there. I want to get on this flight, and I'm going to get out of there because I'm claustrophobic, and I cannot afford what all those people have with that extra space in the front. And so we look forward, don't we, to that time where the, the flight attendant gets on there and says, it is time for our departure. That's Paul. And I just want to sit on that idea because that affects all of us. I got a call. I got a text early this morning. There, there's somebody that, if you don't know, you missed out on a blessing. Their departure date came early this morning. I got a picture of Roger. I don't know if you guys know Roger. 
Roger died this morning. I got, I got another picture of Roger. Peggy, Peggy combed his hair. This is just, that picture is very recent. That, uh, that picture, I, I think I look good in that picture with Roger. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that picture, but that's one of my, actually, that's one of my favorite pictures. Roger loves the Yankees. Roger loves Peggy. Roger loved his family. And uh, there, there's Peggy. You want to hear one of the cutest love stories of all time? I'll tell you even if you don't want to. Peggy was telling Greg, that's Greg, obviously, and that's her, his, her granddaughter there, Roger and Peggy's granddaughter, she was saying, you know, uh, he was older than me, and we met, uh, and we fell in love, and she said this. I thought this was so accurate. This is such a beautiful love story. She says, I was his Elizabeth Taylor, and he was my Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Isn't that, look at her, though. Isn't that, she's probably watching online right now. Isn't that pretty darn accurate? She does look like Elizabeth Taylor, but, but Roger was such a great guy, and so uh, most of the time I knew Roger, he was in that wheelchair or he was in a walker. I knew him before that, but, but most of the time I knew him and that, that was kind of his role and he was inching towards the end of his life. There were many times we thought it was the end and then he was like a cat. He would bounce back and uh, he, he would give it another run. We, we kept thinking, well, maybe this is it and maybe this is it and then he'd get healthier and then he'd get sick and then he'd get healthier. And uh, he, he was just this gentle giant. And his whole family, they'll take up like a tire row or two because Roger, one of his legacies is he was getting his whole family, his, his kids and his grandkids in church. And he was known for two things. He was known for farming and metal detecting. He, he would say, do you want to come fishing with magnets with me? He would tell me that. I never got to do that with him. Uh, but, but when I was there the last time, I was just there Friday and he, he wasn't Co- coherent. He wasn't really with it, but the daughters were around the bedside. He was on hospice at the farm, and they showed me the deck where he was known for taking out his pistol and shooting critters and just had no sense of, like, there's actually rules where you, maybe you shouldn't do that. Uh, he was like the Yosemite Sam of the farm those last years of his life, and, and he, he loved, he was like a pirate. He loved searching for treasure, and he loved doing that with Peggy. They were inseparable. 53 years, that's just marriage. Then they were dating too. And so they were together a long, long time and he has this legacy. But there was this idea being built up in the family that everyone knew was coming, Roger knew was coming. His departure date was near. This was a gentle giant. This was a humble man, Roger. In fact, many times he would come to me after the service, he'd go in his wheelchair and he'd, he'd will along at the end of his life and he'd have a little tear in his eyes and I'd say, what's wrong, Roger? And he said, I just want to apologize. I was sleeping in your sermon. And I would say, how dare you never come? No, I just, and it's funny because I can't really see individuals. I just kind of see a blob and I, I would never know, but he was so humble, he would always tell on himself as if I always knew that he was sleeping. And so I'd say, well, I'll try harder next week to keep your attention, Roger. And, and he liked that. But he was just this person of the fine print, right? Job well done. Legacy left. And now he's seeing right now, Roger, Right now, he's seeing Jesus face to face, and I guarantee you when he talks to Christ, he's going to have this humble attitude. It's just going to kind of be this wow moment for him where he gets to see finally his Savior. He'd always say, earlier in my life, Pastor, I did some things that I'm not proud of, but I gave my life to Jesus, and I love Jesus. That's what he would tell me. And so it's this idea that there's this departure date for all of us, and Paul's going through that. And then he says this in verse 7, he says, I fought the good fight. 
He says, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He's looking at the entirety of his life through the lens of this is not in the peripheral what it's all about. This is just a glimpse. This is just a a speck of sand on the ocean. And now I get my prize. And as he goes through this narrative of closing out this letter because he knows his time is coming, he starts mentioning these people of the fine print. And so then our job is to dissect those people that we want to be like and those people that we want to avoid being like because he mentions both and we're going to cover both. And maybe you've read 2 Timothy a handful of times as a follower of Jesus, but I promise you, you've probably always glimpsed through this passage and we're going to stick on it today. Verse 9, he says this. Isn't this the classic, you know, grandpa statement? If you ever have a grandpa uh, guilt you in this way, look at verse 9. Do your best to come see me soon. And kind of that just little nudge. Hey, remember, I'm in prison. When's the last time you saw me? When's the last time you told me you love me? He says, do your best to come see me soon. For Demas, this is a guy that's mentioned in Scripture. We'll cover him for a little bit. For Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is a guy, we'll get to him in a little bit, uh, who was with Paul and then he was not. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone, write that down, underline it. Luke alone, we're gonna cover him, is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring back the cloak that I left with Carpus to Troas and also the books and above all the parchments. He says, I'm in prison. I need something. Go get my cloak. It's cold, right? This is so practical. You never really study it. You just kind of breeze over it. And I promise you this, if it wasn't for a right now media study, I probably never would have preached it because it's like, oh, that's cute. Let's move on, right? But no, for for Paul, it's a big deal. It's the end of his life. And he starts mentioning these people. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. But the first point I want to bring to light is something that this guy, Louis Giglio, says. I want you to hear it. I want you to write it down. You can fill it in your blanks. Number one is this. When it comes to being a person of the fine print, don't make this catastrophic mistake. Don't mistake visibility with value. Write that down. Don't mistake visibility with value. In a culture that is all about visibility, don't make that mistake. There's this person that's mentioned that if you're not in the mood for studying, you would just breeze right over. It's a person by the name of Luke. Who's here has heard of this guy, Luke? You should have heard of him because it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. There we go. Is everyone awake? And then John. And so Luke's a big deal. Luke writes, Luke... And then he also writes what? Does anybody know? Acts. And so he actually has a large narrative in Scripture, but it's all behind the scenes. The book's named after him, but it's about everyone else. And so he brings this person to light, and it's an interesting person to bring to light. He says this thing about Luke in 2 Timothy before he goes on to be with Jesus. He says, he's the only one that stays with me. People don't even know much about Luke. 
But what we know is when the chips are down and Paul's about to die, Luke is still in the storyline. Luke was a Greek that most likely came to know the power of Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so he wasn't there at the time. He came in after the fact, and he got saved by things that were happening in the early church. And what we also know about Luke is that he was a doctor. And so what that means is he would have had a place of visibility in the world that he lived in. So he goes, he makes this transfer in his life from visibility where everyone knows you when you're a doctor. This was actually a sophisticated culture. And so he would have had this prominence, this this stature to him where people knew where to go when they needed help. And so Dr. Luke had this visibility. And he comes in contact with those that are carrying the mission of the church Here's about what Christ did on the cross. Here's about the fact that Christ was resurrected from the dead three days later. He's actually talking to people who saw the resurrection and saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And he hears the gospel that he needs to turn from his sins and follow Christ as Savior. And he has this decision to make in this place of prominence in the world around him where being a Christian was incredibly unpopular. He has this decision to make. Will I believe this message? And then above believing it, will I obey Jesus? Will I pick up my own cross and follow Christ? And what makes uh, Luke so much a character to be remembered is he gives up this status for this ultimate value. He makes this transfer in his life. And wouldn't you know it, as he is writing the book of Luke, this gospel account, one of his main focal points is the miracle of healing. He's a doctor. He's a doctor with a certain skill set that's important. And so he talks about the miracles in the gospel accounts. And he chooses value over visibility. It's not that he's not a doctor anymore. It's not that people don't know what he's all about but he starts going and interviewing people that walked with Jesus and he uses his skill set that's very detailed to document everything that's happening with Christ and then the early church. And he does so with no promise of ever having visibility again. And then the ironic reality of Luke's life is he has far more visibility because of this decision he makes to have value in the kingdom of God than he ever would have had as a doctor. There are now a few billion people that have read what he has written about Christ and in the early church. And so there's this irony to all of that. He chooses value and he gets visibility. He didn't even know that when he starts documenting things that God is going to use this documentation for a catalyst of the expansion of the gospel to the known world. And what was his one character trait above all others that makes him so important? This is the thing that we all have. This is why we bring him to light. Luke was obviously intelligent. Luke was obviously well-read. He was a writer. He was someone who observed. You ever go to the doctor and what happens when you go to the doctor? Uh, When you go to the doctor, they ask you a lot of good questions to find out what's really going on. And so he's using these skills with, you know, Jesus' mother Mary, the disciples. He's, He's taking in all these giftings, and he's using them for the kingdom of God. But there's this one thing that he has that you don't have to be a doctor to have. And I want you to hear me say this. Luke had this skill set. He was, look at me, he was just available. He was available. And so God uses him because he is willing to be used ends up writing 52 chapters in the New Testament. There's this person, I want to bring him to light. We showed a picture of him. I want to go back to that picture of Mike Wannis. Do we have that? I think they're scrambling. See, this is how you know when live stream's sleeping on you. Mike 
is about to be affirmed as an elder at New Life. You guys were here a few weeks ago when we talked about Mike and brought him on stage and you heard his story. There's something that's going to shock you about Mike because it seems inconceivable, but Mike is way smarter than me. When I went to lunch with Mike for the first time, he started saying things about science, and I was just like, that's cool, Mike. And he's like, no, but then, you know, genetics and this and that. Like, he knows a lot about uh, the scientific world and how genetics work, and he actually, uh, he actually knows the guy personally who created the first genotype. I don't quite understand. I'm probably going to butcher that if I start explaining that. But when he was doing his doctorate, he, he was working with that guy at, at another school. And, and one thing I took away from my lunch was I caught about 30% of what he was talking about. And then I just did the classic thing that I'm really good at. I just nodded my head and say, wow, that's so awesome, Mike. You know, how's your taco at Mazatlan's? And uh, I'm paying for your meal because I want to get to know you. And he, he talked, 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 and just a humble, humble guy. And, and when he is at the church, it's Mike. But when he is at Northern, he's the vice president at Northern, uh, and he oversees all of the professors. And, and I had this professor come to me a few Sundays ago, and, and she said, you knocked it out of the park with your leading on this one because he is the best boss that I have ever had in my entire life. And I asked her, I said, are you looking for a raise? And she said, no, no, it's Northern. You just get raises incrementally. It doesn't work like that. And I said, oh, okay, so this is actually a pure compliment. And uh, we were talking about that. She said, this is the best boss that I've ever had. He is the most humble boss that I've ever had. And so at Northern, he has this visibility, right? But, but, it, but at New Life, he's not going to be up here much. He's going to be working behind the scenes as a volunteer. At New Life, he has this value, and here he's not Dr. Wanis, the vice president of academics at Northern. Here he's just a guy that helps with children's ministry and vacation Bible school sometimes and goes to the morning group with the other guys. And when I started talking to him about leadership, he said, I have this passion. Look at me. He says, I have this passion for policy and procedure. And I thought, wow, that is like the nerdiest thing that I've ever heard. And I have zero passion for policy or procedure and I don't like hardly any of my time regimented. I have to have someone, Rhonda, who runs my schedule for me because I am the most, you know, I can go all directions at all times, but I'm full of passion. That's not a front. That's actually me. And so God has brought us together with the other elders and the other pastors because we have to fill those gaps. And he's a doctor, and he has skill sets like Luke, and I don't have any of those skill sets. And so we come together for the same purpose of making Christ known and advancing the gospel. And that's what it looks like to be a person who pursues value over visibility. And oftentimes when you do that, all of a sudden, un unbeknownst to you, all of a sudden you get more visible than you ever planned on getting. But that's Luke's story. Number two, write this down. People in the fine print need to fall in love with the right things because it's not a matter of whether or not you fall in love in life. You will fall in love with something. You will worship something. It's a matter of what you fall in love with. Look at this narrative again. Verse 10, there's this guy that is named Demas. He gets a few shout-outs by Paul, not just in this narrative. He's mentioned in Colossians. He's mentioned Philemon. And when he's mentioned there, he's mentioned as a trusted brother and fellow servant. Now Paul is at the end of his life because it's not the first day, it's the last day that leads the legacy. This guy is central to the most important thing in the history of the world. He's a partnership stake first owner. Right? He, he gets in in the beginning stages of church planting. He ends up in Thessalonica. 
goes to the big city. He ends up with the bright lights around us. He sees everything. He gets caught up in it. And then Paul says about him, don't trust him. He's fallen in love. He's fallen in love, but he's fallen in love with this present world. He's been motivated by fear. He got to know the power of Nero better, who's killing Christians. He's remembering all of the pressures of life. And he says, this has been great, but Paul, I gotta go. I can't walk this road with you. He gets caught up and falls in love with the present world. He's blinded by the immediate instead of pursuing the ultimate. This this idea of being in love, if, if you haven't been in love, maybe God has a plan for you, you're still single. Mike, I didn't even know you were here. I thought you were going to be at the second service. I saw him with his wife. But, uh, but this idea of being in love, we can all connect to that because if we're not in love, we, we want to be, right? I mean, most people would want that type of love story. 90% of all culture and society uh, in America is going to get married at some point. But the idea is this. When we have a relationship with Christ, it's what, what Greg is singing about this morning. It's this idea of affection. He the Bible is, we're the bride of Christ. He's jealous for me, the song says, because that's a biblical concept, that God is a jealous God. He has this affection for us, and there's this love between us. It's the, the groom and the bride of Christ. Going back to Roger and Peggy, they've been married 53 years. They've been together longer, and they have this genuine affection for each other. And this is pretty personal, but she texted me this this morning, and I don't think she'll mind if I share it. I said, Peggy, how are you doing? You know, I was there Friday, and I'm praying for you. And she texted me, you know, he passed this morning. And, uh, you know, how can I pray for you? And she said, right now, I'm sitting in his bed because it's still warm, and they just came and took him, and I just wanted to have this sweet moment with Roger. The idea is this. She is absolutely in love with Roger. That's her Clint Eastwood. And it's not a matter of if we're going to be in love in life. It's just a matter of what we're going to be in love with. This affection that Demas gets caught up in of the world is absolutely demonic. It's all about the immediate. It's all about driven by fear and pleasure and self-seeking self-centeredness. And we all run that risk. It's, It's not about... The first day we make a decision for Christ, it's about picking up that cross and following him, and then he has this affection for us first, and then our response to that as a person of the fine print, male or female, is to have this affection back to him, and we fall in love with Christ. That we're not a religious institution that's based on a legalistic set of rules, that we are a people that make decisions based on the fact that we love this person that saved us from our sins. And this puts us in a different category if you're new to Christianity or new to new life. It puts us in a different category of every other world religion. That we didn't earn our way to God, that God came down to us through his son Jesus Christ and he loved us first and now we have this affection that drives our decision making. And when people are not in the story, in the narrative of God's story, it's because they make the same decision that Demas makes. And it's this decision to not love Jesus but to have our affections driven by things that are temporary and fleeting. Here's another one. Write this down. People of the fine print never put personal differences. This is cool. Never put personal differences ahead of kingdom impact. You, you should go back and read this little passage of Scripture again because there's things that are happening 
that are genuinely in the fine print. It's kind of the, the story behind the story. We've covered a handful of people in the last few weeks that now come back into play because there's a narrative happening behind the scenes. When we're not in the story, it's because we've abandoned this idea of kingdom impact. And maybe it's a, a theological issue where we can't get along with somebody in the church or you know, we, we wanna chase the things of the world. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. But what's happening in the New Testament is the same thing that's happening in churches all around America, all around the world today, that people are taking their personal differences and they're saying, you know, I, I was all in, or at least I was all in on the idea of church. It probably wasn't about Jesus, but I was all in at church. But then something happened. There was this rift. There was this divide. And then I realized what this person who I cared about was all about. And now because I've had this rift with them, now I am not going to have any kingdom impact. I'm just going to say, check, please. I'll see you in five, ten years. Maybe I'll show up for Christmas. Maybe I'll show up for Easter because I thought Christians were one way. And it turned out they were a totally different type of person than I actually expected. And I would just challenge you with that. If that's your worldview, are you looking to Christ or people? Because the reality is Christ is perfect and we're all sinners. And the reality of being, being in the local church is this. Right? Thank God there's hypocrites around you because you're a hypocrite yourself and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And if everyone else was perfect and you were a hypocrite, wouldn't you even feel more out of place? See, Paul is having this time where he's remembering people and he starts bringing people in this text back into light. People that we've long forgotten and then he brings them back at the end of his life. There's this story that we covered a few weeks ago by the guy by the name of Barnabas. He was the son of encouragement. He's with Paul on his first missionary journey and then they end up parting ways. We didn't cover that part. They end up parting ways and they did so over a rift because the story behind the story is this, that they both had a different view of this guy by the name of John Mark, who ends up being important in Scripture as well. And John Mark, we don't know the details. He started with them the first missionary journey, but once it got going, he flaked out and he went back to Jerusalem. And we don't really know why, so I'm not going to say why. I, I heard some reasons why this week, but I, I don't think we know enough to really cover it. So we know that he left for whatever reason. And he goes back to Jerusalem, to the headquarters of the church that's being founded there. And when we go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he has that personality where he's very forgiving and redemptive. Barnabas wants to take Mark with them again. And Paul, can't you just see Paul, the theologian, the rigid rule follower, the brilliant mind? He, lo he looks at Barnabas, he's like, man, you're just too encouraging. And he says, there's no way I'm going back uh, with, with Mark on this second missionary journey. And so the friction was real. And now they have this divide where they go their separate ways. And, and Paul goes with Silas and Barnabas goes with Mark. And it ends up being a good thing because now they're making more gospel impact. But now check this out. At the end of the lifespan of Paul, go back and look at this text. Put it on the screen again. There's something that happens. If you blink, you miss it. Paul understands the importance. Go back to the scripture if we can. He goes back uh, to the importance of the gospel that is being put before them. And in verse 11, he says this. At some point they made up because he says, get Mark and bring him with you. He is useful for me in ministry. I know that he bailed on me. I know we went our separate ways. But over the years, I have found him useful and they must have made up because 
he decides that the mission is far more valuable than these little rifts that divide us. And so within the narrative of the people of the fine print, you see Paul putting this on display. Never put personal differences ahead of kingdom impact. Paul gets it, and he puts those things aside. Here's some closing thoughts I have for you before we do this vote of affirmation and close this thing out. I want you to catch this because I was thinking in my head, okay, so we've listened to these things. Maybe you've been studying this together on Right Now Media. But then, then the idea becomes this. What, what are the umbrella thoughts? What are the things that are overarching, whether you're talking about Barnabas, whether you're talking about Priscilla and Aquila, whether you're talking about Tabitha, what, what are these things in the last several weeks that we need to carry with us? And so after this week, I think what I'm going to do is spend a little time with the same idea in the Old Testament and kind of venture out on our own. I don't know how long I'll do that, but before we get there, I want to close this thing out with these ideas. When it comes to the people of the fine print, write this down. This is just from me to you. Humility is always the starting point. Humility is always the starting point. Luke comes, to, or Luke comes to Christ. What does he do? He gives up his status. He gives up his status, and he doesn't really look. He just he says, this is what I'm all about. This is what I'm going to do. It's worth it. Jesus is worth it. Tabitha is humble. She's always known for doing good. She's always known for helping the poor. She's always known for helping widows. Barnabas, in the midst of a divisive world, is always known for encouraging. Priscilla and Aquila, discipling, tent-making, hospitality, mentoring, moving, sacrificing. The narrative that starts everything in our life is humility. And we have that humility that we walk in. Then God does amazing things in our life. Here's another one that I want to leave you with. This is just the cold, hard truth. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we all have a decision to make. If you choose this route, like Luke, like Priscilla and Aquila, what did Priscilla and Aquila do? They kept moving. They kept moving with Paul. They lost income. They lost all sorts of things. But, but I want you to have this too, that if you decide to be a person of the fine print and live for an audience of one, that the pain is always a part of the process. That's the common denominator. But there, there is something to lose. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. He says, foxes have holes. I don't have anywhere to sleep. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was beaten. Jesus was crucified. Jesus died. He rose from death. I mean, he lives a life that is fulfilling, but it's difficult. And when we want to do this thing called discipleship, where, which what it means just simply in layman's terms is this, just follow Jesus. You wanna know what it means to be a Christian? Jesus is going in a certain direction, you're going in that same direction because you're his disciple or you're, her, uh, you're uh, his disciple. And so pain is inevitably a part of the process. And what I've seen over the last 20 years is this, that people who love Jesus tend to get here, hit with weird things in life. There's this thing called spiritual warfare that's happening all around us that, that God loves his local church and that there's this other counterpart called Satan who hates it. Satan hates when 
Christ gets the victory and another person makes the decision to follow him and, and he will do things, right? Our sin nature will, will have us chase things like this guy Demas in verse 10, but there's also this spiritual warfare going on around us. I told the, uh, the staff a few weeks ago, we were praying a staff meeting. I said, you know what? I'm gonna do something that I don't normally do because this isn't kind of how I naturally see things, but I said, I feel like there's a spiritual attack at New Life and we just need to pray for it. That the enemy wants to have us And there are things that will happen to you when you take this decision and you say, no matter the cost, I'm going to make tents and I'm going to move with Paul, or no matter the cost, I'm going to give up my medical practice and I'm going to write the book of Luke and the book of Acts, or no matter the cost, you know, whatever that looks like, there is a pain attached to the process. There's a cost to following Christ as Savior. I I think I've told you this in church before, and I I don't want to make it about me because there's people that have suffered way worse than me, Right? But man, I I can tell you with certainty, when I was a counselor, I cannot remember one time a relationship being uh, fractured in my professional life. I I always felt like I had the ability to win people over. But when I went from counselor and youth guy to lead pastor, all of a sudden I realized that there are some times where people are going to just hit you. And it's not that I've never been wrong either, but there are people that are going to come at you. There's like a spiritual reality to taking that step where all of a sudden you're not always the good guy and new life's not always the church that everybody loves and people will say things. I mean, people have said things on social media that are fundamentally ridiculous. And in my flesh, I just want to lash out and call him a meanie, right? I, like, what's wrong with you? Don't you understand I'm nice? You know, I joke around with you guys. I'm like, man, people have said we're a cult. And, it, and I joke around about that, but I think, why would you say we're a cult? All we're about is loving and serving Jesus and seeing people discipled and seeing people baptized and saved. And we don't do anything different than any other evangelical church around here. But, but new life has grown over the years and our influence has grown. And all of a sudden you have people just throwing stones, right? Pain is a part of the process. And I could joke around about that, but, but to be vulnerable, I, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. And my suffering, trust me, is way less than so many others. But when you follow Christ and you decide that you're going to give up your visibility for value, just put in the equation some pain. Add it to the equation. Paul goes through so much. Check out Paul's story. This is why I brought it up. Verse 14. I don't know who this guy is but he's a person of the fine print in a bad way. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. This is Paul. I love Paul. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul's a stubborn German. He says, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. You, see, you hear the little bit of the pity party in there? Like, like I, I was going through all this. This guy, Alexander, he's just, he's just a creep. And then no one stood by me. Demas, where were you? I wrote about you in these different books. I talked about how great you were, and you just deserted me for the world. And my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. That's the redemptive work of Paul. Forgive them. I used to kill Christians. I need forgiveness. Forgive them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthens me so that through the message I might be fully proclaimed to all the Gentiles that might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every, every, every evil deed and bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. This is his kind of final message to the church. And the last thing is this. 
that within all of this, under this umbrella of what it looks like to be a person of the fine print, under all of this is this concept of joy. That joy is the common denominator for the person of the fine print. You can go through all these things and you can have a hard life, but the good news is you can have a hard life and a full heart. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into the heavenly kingdom. It's not gonna be long now. I'm in chains, go get my coat. I ain't, I, I, I'm cold, I'm in prison. He says that, he says, go get my coat. He says, go get, go get my, my writing utensils. I've got more stuff that I've gotta say, but I know my time is coming to an end and I know what Christ has forgiven me of and I know how hard my life has been but I walk in joy because I have this reality that Christ is bringing me safely, like Roger, into his heavenly kingdom. It won't be long before I'm with Jesus, or before I'm with Jesus, right? Translation for us, for you. You don't know when your last heartbeat is. Maybe life's going great. Maybe life's hard right now. But it's not going to be long before you're in Roger's situation. It won't be long before you're with Jesus and Roger and the people that have gone before you safely in God's kingdom. And so you have this joy that you walk in because this is the beginning of the story, not the end. And as we close this out, I just, I just want to close with this question. Where are you at with Christ? You know the answer to that. I, I don't know the answer to that. But, but put aside everything else for just a moment as we close in prayer and the worship team starts getting ready to come back up and we vote. Because the only real reason we have these sermon series packaged for you guys is to bring you to this place that I'm bringing to you right now. This is who Christ is, right? Christ is the only way to heaven. And I need everyone to just put aside everything else and just stare at me awkwardly, okay? Christ is the only way to heaven. You have been told that there are multiple ways to heaven and you have been told lies because the Bible says that there's one way to heaven and it's through Jesus Christ, God's one and only son. The truth of the gospel is that you're a sinner in need of saving, that when God sees you, he loves you, but he sees your sin and it must be punished because God is not just loving, God is holy. And because he's so loving, the narrative of scripture is this, that in your sin, you have to be punished, but God loves you so much that John three sixteen says, he sent his only son to die in your place for your sin so that you can live forever with him. And the reason that you can have joy as your common denominator is because you are walking with Christ, serving Christ, and loving Christ, and apart from Christ, look at me when I tell you this, you have no hope, none. That your life is a ticking time bomb, and all those things that you're finding is temporary joy, and you better just soak those up, because there's gonna be a day when you meet Jesus, and you're gonna see him face to face, and he's gonna say one of two things. He's gonna say, depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, good and faithful servant. That's how it works. And so as you see these people who have value in Christ, who gave up visibility to follow the mission and vision of disciple making, the only real question then becomes, do you know this Jesus? 
And so what you can do in this moment is you can make a decision right now to follow him as Savior. And so with everyone's heads bowed, we're going to pray together. Jesus, as we've looked at these people in Scripture, their stories look a lot like our own. And I just have to believe that in the last few weeks that you've done a work And and right now in this time, I pray that you would awaken hearts for you. That there would be people in this first service of our day that would recognize your kingship. They would first recognize their sin and their shortcomings, that they've tried to do things on their own, that they haven't loved you and served you. But in this moment, their hearts have been open to the gospel. And they say, I don't have all the answers. But what I do know is that, Jesus, you are who you say you are and that you are the way to heaven. And I want to know you personally. I want to have affection for you because you first died for me. And I believe, Jesus, that you died on a cross for my sins. And then I believe that you rose from death so that I can have life. And then when you see me and when God sees me, he doesn't see all of my imperfections. And he doesn't send me in judgment to this place called hell. But when he sees me, he sees your forgiveness over my life. And this day, I'm going to choose who I'm going to serve. I'm going to absorb the pain that could be attached to it. I'm going to take the social risk. I'm going to lay down the visibility that I think I have. I'm going to pick up my cross. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to find joy as my common denominator. And I choose you. And if that's you right now, would you just look at me? I see you. Just keep looking at me. I want to absorb what's happening in this moment. If that's you, for the first time in your life, you have said, Jesus Christ, you are my Savior. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with you. Just keep looking at me. There's a handful of you. Close your eyes. Jesus, you, you know what's happening in this moment. God, I, I pray that they would pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I believe that you died on a cross for my sins. And I want you to save me. And I want you to make me your disciple. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose. And I ask you for forgiveness of my sins in this moment. I pray this in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.